Hey, Pitchfork Economics listeners, on an upcoming episode, we'll be talking about this really core neoliberal economic idea called marginal productivity. It's the neoclassical economic idea that the market, because it's perfectly efficient, always pays you exactly what you're worth. So we want to hear from you, whether you're a minimum wage worker or an executive or anything in between. Do you think you're paid exactly what you're worth? Tell us what you do and whether you get paid what you're worth, and we'll try to play it on the show. And here's the number, 731-388-9334. Thanks. A lot of reason that people need UBI is because they are so poorly paid by their employers. You know, poverty is really personal, and so recognizing that the solutions that we have to take are personal as well. Our existing safety net being built on conditionality actually causes a, a lot of problems. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, where we explore everything you wished you'd learn in Econ 101. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. In this episode of Pitchfork Economics, we, uh, that is me and Paul Constant, are going to explore UBI, otherwise known as universal basic income. So, Paul, what is universal basic income? Well, it is a theory that's grown in popularity, I think, over the, the last 10 years that I've, I've been paying attention anyway. It's a model for uh, providing everyone with a sum of money, no matter how much money they already have or you know whether they're employed or unemployed. Uh, the whole point is to reduce poverty and increase economic equality among citizens and also to spur spending. Yeah, and there's all sorts of flavors of universal basic income, right. uh, uh, different plans, different amounts, um, the, and there are a ton of proponents for it from Elon Musk to presidential candidate uh, Andrew Yang, our friend Chris Hughes, and uh, you know, and both uh, progressives and conservatives, uh, there are wings that think this is a good idea. On the conservative side, uh, it should be noted that a lot of the support for UBI comes as a replacement for the safety net. In other exactly, words, we'll yeah. give you cash, but we won't give you food stamps or, you know, Medicaid or whatever it is. Yeah. But anyway, um, you know, I think the general idea is that it will create more economic stability for people, you know, de-risks people's economic fortunes and, you know, just generally is good for the economy overall. Yeah, and any idea that has fans ranging from Richard Nixon to Cory Booker is at least something you want to take a look at because uh, there can't be too many of those in the in the political universe. Yeah, and there's a bunch of things that proponents think will be benefits. So if you have a UBI, you're you're now effectively compensating people for critical but traditionally unpaid work like raising children. Right. Right. Exactly. So you could look at it like that. You you certainly may spur increased entrepreneurship and innovation because now people have more of both an ability and a willingness to take more risk. Sure. Yeah. Right. They because have a little bit a, of security. Uh, it obviously can drive consumer spending and, you know, it's a way of sharing increased uh, productivity 
productivity increases effectively becomes shared by everyone. That's another that's another big big benefit that the proponents uh, argue for. Uh, on the other hand, you know, in, in the interest of transparency, I will say that I am not a big uh, fan of UBI uh, because I think that ninety percent of the challenges that face our economy can be cured simply with higher labor standards. That yeah. a lot of reason that people need UBI is because they are so poorly paid by their employers. Right. And of course, their employers would love you to believe that that circumstance is immutable, right? That, 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 that there's nothing you can do about the fact that they pay you poorly and the whole world will come tumbling down if they're required to pay you uh, fairly. Right. Uh, and so lots and lots of employers and wealthy people have a big stake in the UBI idea. Yeah, because, uh, because then it, it could wind up being a subsidy for bad employment. Exactly. Right. There, you know, there are a couple of other really big problems with UBI. The first is the expense. So if you're going to give people enough money to matter, right, that's in the range of $10,000 a year, right? Like, yeah, I, I mean, a thousand would be nice, but it's not like yeah, I think a, a thousand a month is is one of the popular plans. Yeah, I believe yeah. that's Andrew Yang's but, plan. You know, with 140 million workers overall, I think 140 million, 150 million is about the right number. Which, yeah, you know, that's 1.8 trillion dollars or something <laughs> like that. That's a lot of money. Yeah, and it's not clear where that money would come from. Right. Uh, for, you could say tax the rich, except that the top one percent only earn about $2 trillion a year in aggregate. Yeah. So where do you find $2 trillion? That's a, that's a big question. But the other thing is, my, my personal observation of humans is that they need stuff to do. Yeah. <laughs> that very few of us function highly or well in the absence of, you know, a compelling reason to go do some stuff. Yeah, for sure. And I recognize that there are some small proportion of people who would just thrive yeah. if given that flexibility and freedom. But I have not met that many people like that in my life. Right. People tend to come at UBI from two directions, uh, which I think is really interesting. And, and the first direction is Andrew Yang and and his ideas that, you know, truck drivers are going to be replaced by automated uh, driving and they're, they're going to need some money. Uh, and that's basically his his argument, which is sort of a dystopian take. But uh, our friend Rutger Bregman, who was on a previous episode, is coming at it from a more utopian standard where he says, it's just enough money that you could say have a general strike or something like that, you know, where you don't feel like if you lose your job that you're ruined. And it's, it's sort of a I don't want to say a safety net because we use that term a lot and it's already loaded, but that it's it's just enough money that you feel like you can be able to say no. That you have more agency in your life. Exactly. Yeah. And so you've got these two sort of competing viewpoints, this dystopian and this utopian. And I'm I'm interested in talking to people who come from both places and 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 to see, you know, because I I've only been thinking about it for years from the dystopian angle, but when I heard Rutger make the the utopian angle mm -hmm. uh it made it a little more interesting to me yeah. and so that's what i hope to to investigate today there's one person in america who's really done more talking and thinking and and expounding on the idea of ubi than pretty much anyone and that's scott santons so i gave him a call my name is 
Scott Santens, and I'm a uh, writer and based income advocate. Something that I'm very interested in, and I think that uh, Rucker Bregman phrased it this way, there seem to be sort of two arguments for UBI, and one is the automation one, which he framed as sort of a, a dystopian argument, and then he framed his own as the utopian argument, uh, which is that not so much that, that your jobs are going to go away, but you would have a little more money to with which you could say no to certain things and that it could encourage a strike and things like that. Do you do you agree with that framing or is there is that clear enough? Have you heard his argument against that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm familiar. And I, that's actually one of uh, my favorite arguments, uh, too. And I, it's the it's called the argument that's the power to say no and the freedom to say yes. So it's saying that it's really important that you should be able to refuse to work and that does not exist now. It's it's like it's because we don't enable that that we see so many of these problems around us. So like if you cannot refuse, then of course essentially uh, employment is there's not consensual and uh, the power dynamic is all for the employer and they can offer you know whatever they want it could be really low uh, wages as low as they can go it can be you know poor working conditions it can be doing work that people don't actually want to do but they feel that they need to do it because they don't really have any other choice so the power to say no is a is a big is a big one, and then of course the, the freedom to say yes is saying that you know you should also be able to pursue unpaid work, and you know this is something that you know like say the minimum wage doesn't address at all. It doesn't help anyone who wishes to pursue unpaid work. It doesn't recognize anyone who is doing unpaid work, but unconditional basic income does do that. It essentially subsidizes unpaid work where people could. Uh, choose volunteering in greater numbers. They could choose uh, care work at home or for others. Uh, it could be any, many different forms of, um, of unpaid work that don't essentially recognize now. That becomes an option once there is an unconditional basic income floor underneath everybody. Mm-hmm. So I do uh, recognize that argument and I use it uh, quite often myself. But also there are many arguments for basic income you know, look at, um, you know, social justice. If you look at racial justice, then, I mean, it's it's crazy that that we've built a system where you've got, um, you know, just a massive difference in median incomes between black and white. You've got a massive difference in wealth between black and white. Mm-hmm. And to address these things is really important to do. And our existing systems don't do that. Like, one of the most powerful arguments that there is, in addition to these other things, is that our existing safety net being built on conditionality actually causes a, a lot of problems. So in our fear of providing to the quote-unquote undeserving, then we create things like, say, we only want to provide assistance to people who are not employed, who are not working. And in so doing, we essentially punish people for working because then you pull away the benefits for doing that, which means that for such effectively disincentivizing accepting of employment. Mm-hmm. That's bad. And because it's conditional, then we also uh, create this stigma where people don't even want to uh, accept these benefits even when they need them because they don't, don't want to be like those people mm-hmm. or 
people who are who should be who we should actually by the terms of considering deserving and undeserving, the error rate is high so that people don't qualify for these things that that should. So as an example, if you look at those living under poverty, 13 million people right now are entirely disconnected from our federal safety net programs. So these are people who have completely fallen through the safety net. It's, it's completely ignoring them. It's giving them nothing. So an unconditional basic income finds all of those people and lifts them up and gets rid of these conditions that are there right now. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the the safety net because that's one of my, one of the things that makes me the most skeptical is that sometimes I feel as though the people who are pushing for a UBI want to eliminate the safety net entirely. And I find that just knowing human nature as I do, I know that, you know, people are going to get in over their heads. And if you give them, you know, a certain amount of money a month and say, I'm sorry, that's it. uh, That's just not going to work for some people. I mean, especially if, you know, say we keep our healthcare system the way it is, a UBI is not going to cover the gaps in coverage, you know, it wouldn't even, you wouldn't be able to pay off a, an ambulance ride uh, with a with a UBI for many, many months. So what do you think about that argument against it? Do you think that I'm mischaracterizing uh, the idea that, that some people are using it as a lever to, to sort of undermine the safety net? There are certain people who would prefer such a a system, but it's also a small minority of Mm -hmm. people who support basic income. So it's, I don't think it's fair uh, to make that argument uh, because it's such a small minority of people who who feel that way. Um, You know, it's almost like I don't go after people who go for universal health care, and I want universal health care, too. I think it's very important. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me to say, well, sure, you want universal health care, but then that would replace everything, and that's all we'd have is, is universal health care. Like, it doesn't make any sense to kind of single that out, where when I talk about basic income and when most people talk about basic income, we're talking about a foundation that's underneath everybody. And then, of course, when you have that strong foundation, then you can build on top of it with programs that actually make sense. We need to decouple healthcare just as much from jobs as we need to decouple income from jobs. To be clear, I'm not saying that I think that humans are terrible and will will only buy gorge themselves on soda if you give them a check. I am saying though that there there are <laughs> always there are always disasters uh, that you can't prepare for in the course of a life that um, that would ex- ex- that and for many people they would exceed the bounds of of what basic income provides and and so would need assistance to overcome those you know hurdles that are placed in their way. Certainly. But I feel that uh, like a big part of our problem is, is this absolute lack of distrust. Like our system is built on distrust instead of trust. So we're saying that, you know, we're worried that a few people are going to do this and this is bad. So let's design the system around all the bad people is like our, our current logic. Whereas it should be is saying, well, most people would do this and 
that's good. In fact, I couldn't even think about that. They're very creative, and they come up with all kinds of things when they don't have limits on them. So let's actually design for that mm-hmm. instead of punishing those people for the few people. Mm-hmm. That makes far more sense, I feel. In recent, you know, in the past few months, even the, the conversation has been uh, broadened by Andrew Yang's Freedom Dividend, which would uh, give $1,000 a month to every American. What do you think of Yang's plan, and are you a supporter of it, or do you have uh, do you have a different idea for what a UBI would look like? I just wrote my most recent article that I published. Uh, I think it was a couple weeks ago now. Uh, it was a, a deep analysis of Yang's Freedom Dividend, mm-hmm. and um, I, I said that it was the the most progressive policy being proposed by any of the Democratic candidates. Like mm-hmm. it is an extremely progressive policy. And would I improve it if it were if it were up to me and and how would I do that? Yes, it certainly can be improved. My main issue with it as far as the the best way to improve it with one thing would be to make sure that uh kids get a portion too. Um essentially adding a child allowance to the freedom dividend. Um because right now it's only adults over eighteen getting a thousand dollars per month. But the way that we define poverty in the U.S. is at the household level where uh, $12,000, um, around $12,000 for one person is the poverty level. But then as the household grows, so the, each additional member is essentially around an, an additional $4,000. Mm-hmm. So that's why when I suggest my plan, I think the best way to do it would be $12,000 per adult and $4,000 per kid, and of course distributed uh, monthly. But without that, uh, Yang's dividend still would massively reduce poverty mm-hmm. in the U.S., uh, essentially um mostly eliminating it for citizens, um, those who were excluded are, are the e- illegal immigrants or immigrants who are not yet citizens. Um, so, but for the most part, it would dramatically decrease uh, poverty by around 80%, and uh, it would decrease inequality by uh, around 15%. So uh, these are massive improvements. And uh, again, if you look at at uh, how I mentioned that 13 million people right now in poverty uh, are getting nothing from the the government, then all of those people would get $1,000 per month. And that would just be massive. So you have a Patreon, uh, which we will link to in our show notes. Is what you're doing with a Patreon what you would be doing with a UBI? Would you be using it to be a politically active person? Um, is this, are you are you sort of living your UBI dream through Patreon? Yeah, so I, I think the Patreon, it provides a really um, interesting look at even the future of work and also the redefinition of work that we need to um, that needs to be part of this conversation as well, because yeah, I'm essentially creating my own job or, or work. I'm I'm pursuing something that's important to me, and the only way I can do it is actually because I have this floor under me that enables me to do this. So you know, some people will look at this and go, "Oh, Scott, aren't you getting like?" paid to do this? Like, aren't you doing work and then getting paid money in exchange for it because you're um, doing like a certain thing and people are supporting that? It's like, well, you can look at it that way, but it's not the way that I would suggest 
looking at it. And just like the same thing with all work, like work that we do is the work that we can only do because we have the resources to do it. You know, if you if you get a job somewhere, it's weird how you have to work, say, for two weeks before you get your first paycheck. And so it's like your employer is kind of like just pretending that you don't need money for two weeks. It's just assuming that you already have enough, uh, but you need money in order to pursue work. And there is so much more to work than just what we get paid for. And so I don't see myself as, as, as like earning a wage or a salary or something. Like I have that income that I can count on every month and then that enables me to pursue unpaid work. Like I'm able to publish stuff for free. I'm able to put stuff into the public domain and into the creative commons instead of selling stuff and uh, you know, having not having the rights to it because I sold the rights and, you know, these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So it's really empowering to be able to create your own work and decide for yourself what's important. We like to ask everybody who comes on the show, uh, why do you do this work? And we've talked a lot about why you're specifically interested in UBI, but I guess I want to ask you specifically why you do this sort of public advocacy work and, and if it's something that, that you've always had in you or if you feel so strongly about the issue that you're moved to become this sort of public advocate or if you've always been sort of an advocate and then you've found the issue. I think we're better than this, essentially. That, And I felt that way for a long time. I think that the way that we're doing things right now is is prohibiting us from better things. I think it's hurting people. I think people are suffering that need not suffer. I think that we've got a society built on distrust and people who are fearful and, and increasingly insecure. And especially more recently, you're seeing people really look for the source of their problems uh, being, say, immigrants or you know, something else that's that's not the actual problem. The problem is that we've built these systems that are making people worse off instead of better off. So what brings me to this is saying that we have the ability to actually create a better world. And I think personally that an unconditional basic income is one thing that we could do that would have the most wide-ranging effect across a great many things in society that we consider harmful or bad and also improve so many things that we consider to be good. Is there anything else that you thought that our uh, our audience should know while we have you on the phone? I would like to talk just a, a little bit about higher minimum wages. It's a good discussion to have, and it's, it can be its whole other discussion, which I think it'd be fun to discuss with Nick sometime too. But I think that we can do two different things when we're looking at the interaction of basic income and minimum wage. So on the one hand, we could do basic income and minimum wage. And if we if we did that, then of course we would we would improve people's incomes further above uh, basic income for those who can find those jobs. And that would be good for them. And at the same time, we would accelerate automation because of course automation is always going to get cheaper. And as minimum wages rise, then it that just makes it more worthwhile for the employer to invest in automation. And I think that could be a good thing. I think that if we go that route, we should uh, acknowledge that that a higher minimum wage will be accelerating automation. And I think it's even more important in that case 
that the UBI should be indexed to productivity so that as more and more automation happens, then the UBI grows more and more so that people are lifted higher and higher. And so that's absolutely something we can do. And I think that there's a discussion to have there. On the other hand, if people feel that work is important and that people should have a job, no matter what it is, that there's something to finding some kind of work that helps you find your purpose, uh, you know, to do something, then we could leverage UBI to actually make work more affordable for everyone. So we could actually not have a minimum wage at all, whereas right now that would be really harmful under basic income because you have that floor, then you would again be allowing people to choose for themselves what makes sense for the cost of their labor. If an employer is offering some work that is people don't want to do, then that employer, in order to attract workers, will need to actually pay a good wage in order to get people to with basic income to accept that. So the UBI already would push up wages beyond even the high, uh, higher minimum wage in those conditions. And then for those uh, employers who actually are offering jobs that people really want to do, and let's say someone would actually enjoy working for $7 an hour on top of their basic income, and they wouldn't be able to have that job if it was a $15 an hour job, then you could actually spread out the labor more because you could have more of those jobs that people could accept. And that would be something to consider as well. Like if we feel that it's more important to make sure that everyone can get a job who wants a job, then that's a potential route to go. So I think that there's a great debate to be had there as far as the interaction of basic income and minimum wage in the future, and that we should decide what it is, uh, which path is most important to us. Yeah, I feel sort of duty-bound to push back a little bit at the idea that, that raising the minimum wage increases the speed of automation. I don't think that's necessarily true. I, certain industries are always looking to automate to replace low-wage workers no matter what. I have not seen anything that connects the minimum wage with with the speed of automation. That That's something that people use to threaten uh, workers who want to raise the minimum wage, but I, I, I have not seen anything along those lines. Yeah, and I would say historically, that's that's accurate. I, I'm I'm talking about that that we are existing right now in a time where these two lines are beginning to intersect. So if you look at say 20 years ago, and you were talking about automation, and, and people are using that threat, saying, "Oh, if you raise minimum wage, and you're going to automate away the job," well, we didn't have the technology that was cheap enough and capable enough to do that. We could only do that for more expensive labor and even labor that was much more routine. Where we are at this point in time and going into the future in the next five to 10 years, this is where technology has become cheap enough to do that, where we've got artificial intelligence that can actually do non-routine labor that it couldn't do before and it's getting cheaper and cheaper and that we've got robots and these machines that can actually do this too at a cheaper level than they could have before that were really essentially limited to industrial robots. So right now it's just happening where you are making the point where robots are getting down to the point at the $15 an hour you know, minimum wage kind of, kind of stuff and you know, $16 an hour, $17 an hour or you know, around there. And so it's just expect more of that. And again, I 
want to welcome that as a possibility, saying that maybe we want to accelerate automation. And if we do that, if we want to have more and more stuff automated, then we should make humans more expensive than robots in order to encourage robots instead of humans. Like, I think that we should be doing that, that, that if a robot can do a job, a robot should do that job. Thank you for that. Thank you for this conversation and making the time for us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Right. Happy, to, happy to talk. Take care. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. I'm Annie Fadley, professional policy nerd at Civic Ventures, and it's time for a little history. The idea of a minimum income first showed up at the beginning of the 16th century. During the Renaissance, it occurred to people that taking care of the poor didn't have to fall just to the church. The humanists, most notably the professor Johannes Vivas, developed the idea of a guaranteed minimum income. Vivas thought that local governments should give all of their poorest residents just enough money to get by on the grounds of morally required charity. That line of thinking caught fire and inspired welfare thinking and policies in Spain and England designed to help the poor before they became desperate. There was another idea that came on the scene at the end of the 18th century, an unconditional one-off grant. It's credited to mathematician and political activist Antoine Caritat, who was sentenced to death for his role in the French Revolution. But while in prison, he wrote a book containing plans for a social insurance system that would reduce inequality, insecurity, and poverty. His idea was to create a pool of money that could be dispersed to families who had fallen on hard times, whether that be poverty or the sudden death of the breadwinner. And he also inspired the development of Europe's social insurance systems in the 1800s. Although those systems are based on entitlement to benefits by having paid contributions to the pot of money, the existence of social insurance at all brought society much closer to the idea of an unconditional basic income. A number of thinkers in the 19th century spun off of all of these theories to develop more ideas about guaranteed income, including the French writer Charles Fourier. He argued that because modern society inhibited an individual's right to support themselves off of the land by hunting, fishing, gathering, and grazing their cattle on common grounds, then civilization owed subsistence to everyone who was unable to meet their needs in the form of a simple hotel room and three meals a day for the poor. His ideas were so popular that people started calling themselves Fourierists, and one such Fourierist, Joseph Charlier, is credited with writing down the concept of a true basic income for the very first time. He proposed giving every citizen a periodic payment based on the rental value of all real estate in their area. He argued that this would end the domination of capital over labor, but he stressed that anything over the minimum required to survive would still need to be earned. Eventually, all these ideas merged and became the universal basic income as we know it today, but that's the root of where the theory comes from. Lots of folks, including Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and others, have advocated for and even tested this idea in different forms and for different reasons. Paul and Nick will talk a bit more about some of that later in the episode, but for now, I hope I've filled your history bucket to the brim. When I was talking earlier about the conflict between utopian and dystopian reasons for, for UBI, I think one of the better sort of utopian proponents of UBI is Suki Samra, the executive director of the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration. I'm Suki Samra, and I'm the director of the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration, otherwise known as SEED. First of all, tell me what SEED is doing in Stockton with the uh, Guaranteed Income Initiative. The SEED, the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration, is the nation's first mayor-led guaranteed income demonstration. We're giving 125 residents in Stockton a guaranteed income of $500 a month for 18 months. We started in February of 2019, and the last disbursement will be in July 2020. The cash is truly unconditional, meaning that there are no work requirements, no strings attached, and no restrictions on how the money can be spent. 
Can you tell me a little bit about how you came to this and to uh, into the guaranteed income as an idea? So Stockton, California really believe is a city on the rise, but we're also a city that's historically struggled and our folks continue to lag behind the rest of the state and the nation. Uh, one in four Stocktonians live in poverty. Our citywide unemployment rates continue to hover at around 7%. We're 18th in the nation for child poverty. We also know that poverty is deeply connected to all the other issues that we're facing as a city. So, for example, poverty is deeply connected to homelessness, to high crime rates, and to low rates of educational attainment. Incremental change just wasn't going to be enough, and that we need something as bold as it was innovative. And that we needed to put in place a program or an initiative that didn't just skirt around the edges, but rather got to the root cause of poverty, which is a lack of cash. And that's what we want to see, or as a guaranteed income demonstration. Do you have a personal connection with Stockton, or, or did you choose it for the reasons that you just uh, that you just mentioned? So I don't have a personal connection to Stockton, but I do have a personal connection to the Central Valley. I'm from Fresno, California, which is two hours south of Stockton. It's a similar city in terms of demographics, in terms of the issue space, um, but the leadership there is a little bit different. We don't have the same young, energizing uh, visionary uh, that is Mayor Michael B. Tubbs who is leading the work in Stockton. He is great. He's a pretty amazing speaker. Yes. <laughs> Where does this money come from for seed, uh, seeds purposes? The seed is fully philanthropically funded. No taxpayer dollars are being used for the demonstration. Our initial and biggest donor was the Economic Security Project, um, a network of individuals based in the Bay Area and New York who are committed to advancing a guaranteed income. Um, and we're also funded by a host of other foundations and individual donors. Obviously, it's uh, too soon to uh, have any official results, but can you talk a little bit? Of, have you seen anything uh, or do you have any anecdotes you can share with us? Um, so like you said, it's a little bit early to know the results of our full research study um, and the, the, the results of our analysis action won't be published until the end of next year. But we do have a group of recipients known as our Storytelling Cohort. And they have opted in and are voluntarily sharing their experience with seed um, and with receiving the additional $500 a month. Um, from them, we've heard that they're using the money on everything from just, you know, everyday necessities like food, rent, gas, um, medicine, to some larger investments like saving up for retirement or uh, paying off their student debt and their student loans to finally being able to move from one part of town where they didn't feel so safe to being able to put a down payment on a house in a different part of town. Um, and I think there are two stories that I can share um, in a little bit more detail. The first of us is, is a recipient named Tom Ross Vargas Jr. He's a native-born Stocktonian, um, and his life is filled with as much hardship as it is with resiliency. He grew up in South Stockton, which is the most disadvantaged part of our city, um, in a public housing development. He dropped out of high school, moved to Arizona, where he wanted to join the Marines and was about to join the Marines, but then got hit by a drunk driver and shattered his people and so wasn't able to go. Today, he lives in North Boston and he's a supervisor at a logistics company. He has two kids and he's caretaking for his wife. In just four months, he talks about how the money has really changed his life and he has changed the way that he engages with the city, um, has changed the way he feels. In conversations with me, he's told me that before he got seen, he used to be super depressed. Um, and had a hard time getting up every day. But now that he's received the $500 a month, he feels so much happier. He's able to spend more time with his kids. He talks about finally being able to sit down at the dinner table with them and being able to involve them in stuff that really matters to him. So it's being able to sign them up for tutoring, being able to sign them up for sports and softball, like softball for the first time. So that's Tomas. And then the other recipient, 
the woman named Lorene. She's a single mother of two. She also lives in North Stockton. And she talks about how already the $500 a month is making her so much happier and so much less stressed. She, when she talks about seed, she says that it's lifted a weight off her shoulders and that because of the additional $500 a month, she feels like she's finally able to breathe. And I think those two anecdotes just show that even though we're only five months into disbursements out of the full 18 months already, seed is having an unconditional cast is having such a transformational effect on the lives of our recipients. So you said there's seed is going to start discussing the results uh, at the end of next year. Can you talk about how the results are going to be shared? Is it going to be like an academic paper or is it, what is the, uh, the reporting process going to look like? So it'll be definitely be a both and. Um, so we're working with a team of independent evaluators and researchers, Dr. Stacia Martin-West at the University of Tennessee, Dr. Amy Castro-Baker at the University of Pennsylvania to do the research and evaluation of seed. They will publish um, a paper at the end of next year and then that would be like a preliminary analysis of the results and then a final paper in 2021 um, that has the full quantitative and qualitative findings. In the meantime, though, um, and what I think is really exciting is that starting in October of this year, so October 2019, um, we're going to make live a community dashboard that's going to start displaying some of the data in a raw aggregate form in real time. So starting this fall, folks will able to be, see things like who is actually, like, what's the demographic composition of our recipients um, and how are our folks spending the money? And that dashboard is going to be, and what's displayed on that dashboard is going to be determined through a rigorous community engagement process. So we're really committed to making sure that even though only 125 folks are receiving the money, that seed is really an initiative that is owned by the community. And so one way that we're going to do that is by hosting these focus groups that will help us determine what data we're sharing out with not only the stocking community, but the nation and the world at large. Obviously, right now, I think the biggest uh, proponent or the the one with the loudest megaphone of uh, guaranteed income is Andrew Yang. And I was wondering, obviously, your plan is is very you know small in scope. But uh, is there anything that you that you would like to point out? Any any differences between what's going on in Stockton and 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 what he's talking about? I just think that right now that is the number one thing that people are seeing when they Google guaranteed income, and and I think it's important to you know highlight the differences and similarities with with what Seed's doing. So I think one of the biggest differences is that in Yang's proposal, he calls for a guaranteed income to really replace the other, the existing public benefit system. For us, it's really important that seed is supplemental um, and that we're not talking about a guaranteed income as replacing that TANF or, that TANF, or what in California is known as CalWORKs or replacing food stamps. We're really talking about it as being supplemental. And how does a guaranteed income and an income floor become part of the 21st century social contract? And how do we restructure the social safety net? Not so that we're replacing what currently exists, but so that we're adding to it, so that folks who are struggling today, despite being on all these other public benefits, are able to make it. I would say I think that there are other proponents of a guaranteed income nationally as well. Um, Most recently, Representative Rashida Tlaib announced her building our Opportunities to Survive and Thrive Act, so the Boost Act, um, and it builds on the progress that we've made over the past couple of years to make sure that the economy is really working for everyone. Um, her bill goes further than what we've seen other bills do um, by eliminating a phase for work, um, meaning mirroring what we're doing in Stockton and essentially providing a guaranteed income for those who are going to need it the most. And if passed, that act would benefit, I think, 100% of adults and children who are in the poorest 
that's a pretty huge distinction to make uh, yeah. <laughs> with Yang. So that's uh, I, I appreciate that. How did you settle on the on the five hundred dollar figure? Because I know Yang's is a thousand, and I've heard lots of different numbers thrown around by different programs. Yeah. So at the time that we were, you know, in our design and planning phase of what is seed going to look like, who's it going to serve, how much is it going to be, and um, I think one of the statistics that was really standing out nationally was that one in two Americans can't afford a $400 emergency. Mm-hmm. I think that statistic has changed a little bit since then, but that was really the root and one of the impetuses behind why we decided on $500 a month. It's a little bit more than that $400 number, but making sure that folks are really able to have that additional cash to cover an emergency when it comes up. Mm-hmm. And the other thing was that um, also during that design and planning phase, um, we had held a couple of focus groups in Stockton, and um, mostly with mothers. And the one number that they kept coming back to was like an additional $500 a month would help them in the summer when their children came back home, pay for ACs, uh, pay for rising costs in ACs um, or air conditioning mm-hmm. or help pay for, you know, the extra food that comes with having children at home during the summer. And so I think so the $500 a month came from both the federal uh, or the statistics that was hovering around nationally as well as our conversations with the community. I assume that uh, at least at least some of you at Seed are interested in the idea of this being a national policy. Is there any sort of a discussion of what the next steps might be? Is 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 Seed at all interested in what making more Stocktons would look like or anything like that? Yeah, and the crazy thing is that even before our results are out and even before stories started coming out of our program, we had already been approached by municipalities from. For example, we have been approached by Chicago. We've heard from folks in D.C., heard from folks in Nashville who are interested in replicating what we're doing and learning from what we've what we've already done since we're the first you know, municipality that's implemented this at this level. For example, Chicago and North have both launched task, task forces to ex- explore how a guaranteed income could slash poverty and the, slash the poverty that those two cities face. Um, nationally, we've seen a new conversation around how, again, do we make sure that an income floor is part of our new social uh, contract. We've seen that both in conversations around expanding the EITC or the earned income tax credit, and again, in conversations um, or in bills like Representative Police Act. So I think already, and this, again, we're only in our fifth disbursement, what we've seen Seed and Stockton really leading the way around what a working economy looks like. I'm excited and really hopeful that as more data comes out and more stories come out that that momentum will only grow and that the movement will only get stronger and stronger. I'm a writer and so I'm always very interested in the the words that people apply to this and and this idea yeah. different formulations uh you know there's universal basic income uh there's guaranteed basic income and obviously universal and guaranteed are different uh, there are very different things. I noticed that you don't have the word uh, basic in in there. Can I mm-hmm. can I ask what the why guaranteed income is your is your preferred terminology for it? So there's two reasons that we went with guaranteed rather than uh, basic or universal. One, our, we're only serving 125 folks, so it's not universal. It's not right. the entire city of Boston. And um, two, we didn't go with basic because we recognize that $500 a month isn't enough to meet the most basic needs. $500 a month isn't going to pay for rent and bills and electricity, but it is a little bit more than what folks might otherwise have. Third, the reason that we chose, we went with guaranteed is to really root our program in the social justice history of the idea of a guaranteed income. So Martin Luther King Jr. referred to and advocated for a guaranteed income. So for us, it's really about continuing that legacy and making sure that the work that we're doing in Stockton 
is rooted in and is really addressing the entrenched racialized and gender stereotypes that go along with poverty. To hear you talk about the social justice aspect of it is pretty informative. I think it's uh, something that, based on my personal experience, have not encountered uh, in in this space. So uh, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, and this and going back to I think the one of the first questions you asked me was why do I do this work, um, and I think in I'm a woman of color, and for me, it's incredibly important that I use my position and the, you know, the privilege and the luck that I've had led to me being in this position to really bring along other folks who look like me. And I think a guaranteed income is a way to do that. I grew up around the edge of poverty. My mom worked multiple jobs um, to, you know, make sure that we could make ends meet. And then after working 14, 15 hours a day, would come home to caretake for not only me and my two sisters, but also for my dad who's disabled. And so for me, you know, poverty is really personal. And so recognizing that the solutions that we have to take are personal as well. Have you noticed uh, that in your interactions with people, uh, I assume that you have talked to a fair amount of government employees. Has there been an, a difference of um, the way that people have discussed uh, guaranteed income in the time that you've been working on it? Yeah, I think, and this is going back to the movement and the momentum that started since we launched Seed, but when we first launched back in October of 2017 and announced that we had gotten this $1 million donation from the Economic Security Project to give people money um, and give people money without strings attached, um, it was seen as such a crazy idea. But since then, I think a guaranteed income has really evolved into something that's viable and something that could be implemented either by other local governments, uh, statewide or nationally. And I think we've really seen the idea gain traction Um, And I think we've also just seen a national discourse, more of an emphasis on making sure that the economy is working for folks today, whether that's in my everyday conversations with um, other, you know, with colleagues and coworkers or with my friends. Did also go to Stanford, too. Friends from Stanford have definitely seen the conversations shift that there's more urgency behind the need for solutions that really get to the root causes of poverty and really get to the root causes of why isn't our economy working for everyone? Why are folks working one and two jobs and still struggling to make ends meet? Because in the richest country in the world, that shouldn't be happening. Is there anything else that you that you wanted to share with our listeners? Thank you guys so much for the opportunity to talk about the work that we're doing in Stockton. I think it's a super exciting moment to explore ideas like a guaranteed income as a solution to the issues that too many folks are facing today. Thank you so much for sharing what you're doing down there. It's been super informative. Of course. Thank you. So, Paul, that was a super interesting exploration of UBI from a couple of very interesting people. Yeah. It remains somewhat skeptical, but it is a super interesting and important idea to be explored. And we should experiment, you know, like trying these ideas in some places almost certainly will tell you more about whether it makes sense or whether it doesn't. Absolutely. And I, I, you know, I think as with pretty much everything in politics, I think intent has a lot to do with it. I really appreciated what Suki was saying about how this is not a replacement for a social safety net, because I think that a lot of libertarians sort of endorse a UBI in bad faith because they just want to wipe out that social safety net. When you see people who are experimenting with different ways to handle that, I think you're really you're really seeing that there's something more to this idea than just a cure-all. One of the only real examples of universal basic income that, that we have in practice is in Alaska. There has been a 
permanent fund dividend since 1982 that distributes some share of oil revenue to residents. So in in 2018, every Alaskan got a check for $1,600 per person. And then this last year, Governor Mike Dunleavy, who leans a little libertarian himself, cut $400 million from the state budget because he campaigned on a promise to increase the dividend to $3,000. And basically, he has devastated the public university system in Alaska in order to get that check up to the level that he promised. Uh, And then a number of other cuts, you know, senior benefits, homelessness services, Medicaid, they've all been pretty much gutted in an effort to get the number up to some arbitrary number. And, And to me, that's sort of the dark side of what what can happen with the UBI if if you're coming at it from a place of bad faith. Yeah, no, notably, he did not increase taxes on the oil companies or rich people to exactly. increase that. He he stole services from poor people to do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> and not even just not even poor people. Alaska has a yeah. had a pretty good public university system, yeah. and, and he just I mean he put teachers out of work. He yeah, yeah it's just just devastating for everyone. It yeah. will be devastating for everyone yeah. for generations in Alaska. So, yeah, I mean, when you look at it, you know, the $1,400 that he added to the check, which, you know, $1,400 is a big deal. It nowhere equaled the benefits that most Alaskans were seeing from all of those other services that he gutted in order to to get the check up to that number. For sure. Yeah. Well, in the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we're going to be talking about a similar but different idea called UBJ, which is Universal Basic Jobs. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media, that's L-A-R-J Media, and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action, follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks, and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. And one more, you should definitely follow Nick on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests, and thanks to you for listening from our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk, Jasmine Weaver, Jessen Farrell, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Stephen Paolini, and Annie Fabley. See you next week.